Hi and hello watch fans and welcome to another edition of The Real Time Show with me, your friendly neighbourhood watchmaker Rob Nuts and my co-host calling in all the way from Amsterdam, Alon Ben-Joseph. How are you today, Alon? I'm doing very well and again excited for another episode. How are you, Rob? Because I think you are quite tired after an amazing trip to the Scandinavian area. I am tired as usual, and as usual, I have been to Scandinavia, which seems to be a, almost a weekly occurrence at the moment. Yes, last week I was in Copenhagen for one day with my colleagues from Arkenaut picking up some materials that I took all the way up to Stockholm for a fair with our retailer there, INDP Watches. And it was a great event, actually. I saw some good other watches from other brands and met up with our good friend Xavier de Rocamorel from Chapek, and we spent a lovely evening together and early morning swigging uh, like a ruling whiskey funnily enough in uh, the grand hotel by the waterside so yeah very very nice um have you been to stockholm yourself alan i actually haven't it's very long time on my bucket list to visit i've never made it further than copenhagen strangely enough because the dutch culture is very close to the majority of the scandinavian cultures and I have a lot of friends from actually all the countries in uh, the Scandinavian region. Uh, lovely chaps, a lot of colleagues, jewelers that I know, crazy guys, especially when they start drinking. And the, the, the Viking roots come up again. Um, and, and, and this is a shout out to my Scandinavian uh, friends and Swedish friends from Nimansur. So these guys are really local. Um, so no, I need to go. So maybe you... Bring me along on your next trip, Rob? Well, you know, if you like, you can come along to Helsinki with me on... Well, now this episode will be airing uh, on the 16th of May, and I will have just returned from Helsinki because I'm always bouncing up and down all over the place. Although, funnily enough, you know, um, not all even Scandinavians would agree with me here, so maybe I'm talking out of turn. But in England, we don't actually include Finland in the term Scandinavia, technically. We only include... Norway, Sweden, Denmark, and Iceland, because they're within the Scandinavian crescent. And we regard Finland as a Nordic country, as all the others are as well, along with Iceland as well, and Faroe Islands and Greenland, I think. But it's really interesting, because like when, when I think of Scandinavia, obviously I think of like Finland, Sweden, Norway, Denmark primarily. But technically speaking, if we're going to use English as it's intended, Finland's something else entirely. And the Finns, they're something else entirely, especially when they've had a drink. Now that's... That's good. That's good fun. I I had a roommate, a dorm mate from Finland while studying in New York. So I've uh, had some quality time on a 24-hour skit with uh, a great Finnish dude. And yeah, they, they are special, spectacular. Um, they gifted the world. Nokia is uh, connecting uh, people. It uh, works better when they have a drink indeed. And and to our dear Scandinavian listeners or the Nordic listeners, I definitely do know the difference between each nationality. And it's very different because we in the Benelux don't like it when we are considered one nation, which we totally aren't. So does anybody consider Belgium, Netherlands, and Luxembourg as one nation? Well, not a nation, but as a region, right? Especially the watch oh, brands. Yeah. Okay. Watch brands, they, uh, they, they categorize Benelux as a market. Scandinavian as a market, the whole UK as a market, and what strikes me as odd, all of Latin America is one market for them. It's like a continent, right? You know, one of the funniest things about the Scandinavian market in general is Satina reigns supreme. Did you know this? Like, it's incredibly yeah. popular in Scandinavia. It's like the number two brand in uh, Norway. Yeah, and I couldn't understand it the first time I went to Oslo and Sandefjord. Funnily enough working um, with Namos retailers, the ubiquitous presence of Satina. And I was like, what is going on? Why are the Norwegians so mad on Satina? It's funny that you say that. I noticed that as well, because all the, the, the retailers I spoke, they're like, yeah, what are you? we always discuss amongst each other what brands do you have, which brands do you love, who do you work with, who's the nicest, and then which ones are the biggest turnover makers, right, in your in your boutiques. And, 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 and Satina really was always taking position one and two, and if I remember correctly, they told me that back in the day, as we said on previous episodes, in, in, in Northern Europe, we like sports watches very much, right? Casual watches, sports right, watches. Right. And in, in the Nordics, they definitely need them. Uh, seafaring, 
winter sports, cold, it's wetter than southern parts of Europe. Um, and Certina was very innovative, I believe, in the 40s, 50s, with, with making watches waterproof. And they worked with cork, if I recollect correctly. And apparently that worked well. Cork? What, you mean, you know, like the, the, the tree? Yeah, they used cork in the crown to make watches waterproof, if I remember correctly. Yeah, back in the day. Okay, that's interesting. Tell me this. I, do you have a strap? You stock a strap made from cork, do you not? A vegan strap? We didn't stock it. We created it together with Braloba, I believe. Oh, even better. My apologies. Yes. Wow. Six, seven years ago, it's we, 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 we nicknamed it Compassionate Luxury which we didn't like vegan or whatever. So the strap is made of ash wood on top, laser cut with a profile, and underneath it has cork indeed, yeah. And and it has natural glue, so it's not chemical glue. I remember you sent me one and I wore it on, oh, this is a complete coincidence, a Nozumi, which is a Swedish watch based in Stockholm, uh, designed by our friend David Campo, who will be coming on the show soon in June when he's got some news to share with the watchmaking world and it looked a million dollars i gotta say it was a really really lovely strap and i believe that christopher didrickson one of our listeners is now in possession of such a strap is he not he is and i gifted it to him because he is maybe our biggest fan oh yeah and definitely contributor definitely and i gave it to him because if i'm not mistaken this is episode 55 and it might well be that he's shared all 55 episodes on his Instagram <laughs> stories. And for that, I wanted to thank him because this is a shout out to you, Chris, one of the many, but for me, you're the number one ace, Chris. Um, thank you for your support. And that was a little gift for me. I surprised him with that strap. I owe him more than a strap because he was at the fair in Stockholm last week and he helped me man the Arkanaut store because he's an Arkanaut buyer himself. He owns the Dark Matter one of the first Dark Matters. And uh, Chris was there sharing his stories and experience of the brand with passers-by and maybe would-be buyers as well. So that was really great of him. It, he also drove two and a half hours from his watchmaking school that night just to see the fair with a few of his classmates. And then he drove them back in the evening because Chris doesn't drink. So he's actually able to do adult things like that um, without it being an issue. So that's really appreciated, Chris. Thanks again. And thanks for, yeah, sharing every shred of real-time show news it really does mean the world to us and it helps propel us forward and grow which we have been doing quite significant recently certainly since watches and wonders now while we're on the subject of scandinavian watches it would be a bit of a waste not to talk about some of the best brands up in that part of the world because it's very interesting and it's on our mind alan what brands from scandinavia and you can include Norway, you can uh, even include Greenland if you want, or the Faroe Isles, uh, all of the Nordic countries. What are your favorite brands from that part of the world? My first encounter with a Nordic watchmaker was in the 80s when I got infected with the real indie watch bug with, because of Mr. Christian van der Klau, um, AHCI during the 80s at Basel, and there I obviously saw Sven Andersen. I don't really consider him a Scandinavian watchmaker in the sense that he set up in Switzerland rather early on, and it's a Swiss brand, but he obviously deserves a shout-out. And then going to Wutileinen, we discussed the GQ in length during the GPHG Awards, was actually the first episode ever of this podcast series. He deserves a shout out. Um, the one that's most fun is obviously Salpaneva with the amazing funny moon discs and moon faces on his watches. You know that's supposed to be based on his own face, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got a great face. Bit Joker-ish, but actually that doesn't do it justice. It's cooler than that. So super cool. Um, I think of GOS, Ghost. And then... Your buddy, Black Badger, who's Canadian living in Scandinavia. Yeah, he lives in Gothenburg. That's right. Yeah. So let's call him an import Scandi. <laughs> it's cool what you do. What you guys do with Orkanot is amazing. Straum is amazing. 
the 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 launch you guys did a few weeks ago with your Yan La 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 Mountain Explorer watch. Why do I love Scandinavian watches and design? And it started with Danish design. Uh huh. Uh, my dad always loved it, and it came from jewelry. So think of Jacob Jensen. They have very minimalistic designs, and it came up in the seventies, eighties in the jewelry. That went into watches with Jacob Jensen, for example. We sold a lot of them. So that instilled Scandinavian design passion for me. It's more or less, less is more. And if you look at today's design elements, I still think it's there. Um, so yeah, I love it very much. And I think they came up earlier than the Dutch watchmaking scene. And, and there is a term Dutch design. But that goes more for furniture than for jewelry and watches, strangely enough. What what are your favorites? And and obviously you can mention Arcanaut and Straum and every brand that you help out, but give me more, please. Well, for goodness sake, you took nearly all of them for I mean, there's only so many. I'm sitting here thinking, leave me some meat on the bone, man. But yeah, you're right. Okay. I'm obviously biased towards Arcanaut and Straum. For anyone that doesn't know, full disclosure, I'm the head of brand development at Arcanaut, and I have worked with Stram behind the scenes on product development and storytelling and whatnot, and I love those guys. I love them all, like brothers, and yeah, if you don't know about those watches, go to firstly Arcanaut.watch, that's A-R-C-A-N-A-U-T dot watch. And also then visit Straum.co, that's S-T-R-A-U-M dot C-O. Enjoy that. Uh, I was also going to mention GOS. I spoke to Patrick last week in Stockholm. He was there as well, of course. He's a very nice chap and doing some interesting stuff. Rather wild designs with a lot of Damascus steel in play. Not really a typical Scandinavian aesthetic, I would say. Very maybe Viking inspired. It is certainly more aggressive in many ways and uh, quite unique. So if you are looking for that special touch of something on your wrist, then GOS, that's GOSwatches.com, is definitely worth checking out. And he's got some wonderful, wonderful colors. And I tell you what, it's interesting while we're talking about it, because I'm sure our listeners will be interested. If you go on his website, in the homepage, scroll down, uh, there's a watch called the Norskin, N-O-R-R-S-K-E-N. Northern Lights on your wrist, it says. And you can see on the homepage, there are three colors of this. There may be more, but there's three here. That's the Rissa, which is like a sort of teal, a fuchsia, self-explanatory, and blue, even more obvious. So I asked Patrick how he achieved these colors, and I assumed him to say, oh, it was some kind of anodized aluminum or CVD, that's chemical vapor deposition coating. But it wasn't. It was actually, and I'm going to try and get this right, I think it was nano ceramic coatings and that enables the metallic sheen of the underlying material of the substrate to still come through so it doesn't dull the the material at all it's a little bit more well it's considerably more elegant than just lacquering or clear lacquering as many brands would do in that instance and it's absolutely gorgeous again the watches will not be to everybody's taste because they're quite in your face in some ways but the technique is yeah top draw and deserves a mention so well done to gos watches that was one of the standout brands at the fair last week for me i also would like to mention two more brands that you omitted one i hold in very high regard and that's urban jurgensen um i do you know much about urban jurgensen yes that's the name i was digging deep for ha all right that was a retailer that made watches for almost 100 years, I believe. And they yeah. recently became a manufacturer and they got bought by a legendary watchmaker. But I don't remember if it's Vutilainen or somebody bought that brand. Yeah, you're right. You're right. So um, it's not just 100 years. Actually, this brand was founded in 1773, would you believe? And it has now been overtaken by Kari Vutilainen who is about to debut new watches under that label. Now, at the moment, if you go on the website, it's U-R-B-A-N-J-U-R-G-E-N-S-E-N.com, urbanjurgensen.com. You will not see much at all, but you can enter your email address and Kari and his team will be in touch with you when there is something to show. So that's exciting. I used to love their cases, the, the modern cases with the, the sort of curved 
and lovely beveled lugs. I thought they were just gorgeous. And and I think they have a signature hour hand, which is like a big open circle with a little tip on it. And I think that's very proprietary to me, if I'm not mistaken. And that, that really spoke to me. And, and I love where Carrie is taking it right now. Well, I can't wait to see, because I've not actually seen anything that Carrie's doing. If you've seen it behind the scenes, lucky boy, let me know what it's like later. And I cannot wait to see them hit the market again. One other brand that I feel compelled to mention, although I must admit that as a brand, it's it's all over the place, is Zoo Sandstrom. Now, I've probably spelt that or pronounced, I've probably pronounced that wrong. It's spelled S-J-O with an umlaut, O with an umlaut for the first name. So Zoo, I don't know how you say it. And Sandstrom. S-A-N-D-S-T-R-O with an umlaut M. Three umlauts in a brand name. There are not many brands, consultants that would advise that, but I suppose Suzanne Strom does not have the hugest international presence and so maybe isn't an issue for it. Now, I mentioned it because it did one watch that was really worth talking about, and only one, actually, and that is the Royal Capital, which is a very beautiful micro-rotor watch available in rose gold or I believe white gold. And it's not cheap. It's about 13K when it was around. And I really loved it. I always thought that it was a superb marker point for the brand to build on, but they never did go anywhere else with that level of watchmaking. They have otherwise very affordable and for the most part, quite uninspiring watches in the collection. But it is just interesting to check out what they were able to do with the Royal Capital. So I'd advise you to go have a little look at that website. Again, that's S-J-O-O-S-A-N-D-S-T-R-O-M.com and have a look at the Royal Capital. In the white dial with a rose gold case, it is particularly handsome. Is it a watch that was ever on your radar, Alan? No, actually not. So thank you for, very much for that because I always say I learn every time I listen or record a real-time show episode, I learn something new. So thank you, Rob. You made my day. Tis my pleasure. And if any of our listeners are fans of the, um, well... What should I call it? Legendary Tudor Ranger. <laughs> you know I'm not a fan. <laughs> hey, it's so much. Um, you might be interested in Suzanne Strong because they do do a watch uh, which is called the Royal Steel Classic. And it has a similar kind of typeface. And the black one with the red tip seconds hand is a nice corollary for the Ranger if you're a fan of that field watch style but you want something a little off the beaten track. But yeah, if you're going to go Scandinavia for me, it's Arkenaut and Strand first and then Sapin Yeva, Wutalainen, and soon to be Urban Jokinson coming back into the fray, and of course, GOS. All right, let's actually dive into a mailbag. <laughs> 21 minutes and nine seconds into recording. Um, all right, we have actually had some really good questions, and most excitingly, they've come in from all sorts of sources. We've had three from the, no, four from the contact form this week, one via Linktree. I'd even forgotten we had a contact for one link tree, but thanks Richard Swords, who just, Richard seems to just experiment with ways of contacting us. I think he's contacted us on every single platform and he's now part of the real-time network. So, you know, that's awesome. <laughs> he's a, he's a, a very active user. So, okay, let's start with Richard actually, now since I mentioned him by name. He says, dear gents, thanks for the great work. You're welcome, Richard. I'm really enjoying the podcast and appreciate you answering my questions. Well, that's because you asked them, Richard, so please keep asking them. And he says, my only question right now, if someone wants to sell a watch, what would be the best method for a safe sale and solid price? And there's an addenda to this because he actually asked this question sort of twice in two different ways. So I'm going to ask the second question as well because I saved it. I didn't think it was quite a duplicate. He says, if someone does want to sell a watch, what's the best way to do it? I once promised myself that when my watch box was full, it's one in, one out. This gets tricky, especially if there are some sentimental items, but that's a whole different story. How would you guys recommend going about letting watches go? Okay, so two questions about selling watches. One about the process of selling them safely and securely, and the other one about deciding how to sell them. <laughs> Bizarrely, one question came from the link tree and one came from the contact form, but that's just, that's Richard. Awesome. Um, okay, Alon, let's start with how to sell a watch. Many options. Obviously, it depends on where you live. And if you are knowledgeable or not, if you want the road of less or least resistance, go to a vintage dealer, CPO dealer, a jeweler, trade it in, sell it, commission it, consign it. 
So that's the road of less resistance, the easiest, but will cost you the most. Uh, why? Because obviously there needs to be made some margin just to cover the overhead, right? Um, because consider that selling on Corona 24 yourself or the dealer, you already pay commissions there. Not only subscriptions and advertising money, but also commission on every sale. Think about insurance, shipping, photographing it, probably servicing it, etc., etc. Now, going from one side of the spectrum to the other, doing it 100% yourself is obviously putting an ad up online. So, what options do you have? In Europe, and a bit US, the most popular platform is Chrono24, C-H-R-O-N-O 2424.com. You can sell there as a private person. I honestly don't know how much that costs you. In the US, eBay, I believe, is the most popular platform. Also, as a private person, you can obviously sell there. They do take a commission. What's cool, though, they offer, since I believe two years, an authentication service for free on every product above two or $3,000. And recently, they introduced that in the UK as well, not on mainland, in mainland Europe yet, soon to come. I know that a lot of people in the US mostly sell on Reddit. There are loads of threads, forums, fora on Reddit. Back in the day, what you seek was big. I actually don't know how much action is going on there. They're probably in every country localized fora for watch enthusiasts. In the Netherlands, I know there is a horlogeforum.nl. I know they sell a lot there. What's the downside? The risk, right? Who are you dealing with? Security, safety, etc. The upside is you save on commissions. Now, Red Bar communities could be an option. With the Amsterdam chapter, we recently decided to move away from a Facebook group and created a WhatsApp community on WhatsApp with different groups inside. So the real-time network is just one sole group on WhatsApp. We don't sell there, but in the Red Bar Amsterdam chapter, we create several groups. One of them is a sales corner. So that's dedicated for Red Bar crew members to sell amongst each other because there is obviously a higher level of trust. So that's on a very micro level. Uh, you could think of your friends to sell obviously to them, but it's a bigger of a hassle. And how do you come to a value and an agreeable price? That's my tips, Rob. What are yours? Yeah, I mean, you touched on maybe the major areas in which one could consider selling the watch. So it's either in person or online, I guess, are the, the main channels. Now, I would say if you want to be sure about you know the sale, very safe and secure, selling it in person to a CPO dealer or a pawn shop even is fine. But I don't think that's where you're going to get the best price, even given that you probably wouldn't have to pay commission. Or anything there you could send your watch to an auction uh even a, a live auction house if it's a watch of decent value somewhere like christie's or sotheby's rob mention decent price well, what's the minimum because they won't take watches 5k i guess well actually no they would take watches for 5k um it depends really if they're doing um like a specialist auction so for example like i was at an auction house the other day in stockholm and uh it's kaplan's actually uh, one of our listeners works there sana and I was looking at a Omega Pro Pro, which had an estimate of around three and a half thousand euros. It, it had already breezed past that and it was around five. But I mean, it was of a specific type. Now, Kaplan's would work with watches of most values, really, because they have a very broad spectrum of client interest. But, you know, Sotheby's, Christie's, if they're doing like a special edition auction based on, say, the style, the Style. I can never say it. How do we say it, Alan? Uh, Mondrian? De style. De style. Okay. Style. Great. Like English style. style. Hey, dude, you style. have great style. 
You have great style. Okay, de style. I can always go to German, don't I? I always like you exactly. Speak. You got it. I can't help it. I don't speak Dutch. So okay, uh, it's, uh, I need I need to leave Germany. Obviously, it's, it's seeping into my bones. Okay, de style. If, for example, an auction house were doing an auction based around that, then of course they take our celebrated collaboration that we did with Nomos all those years ago, and that's uh, watch that retailed, I believe, at the time when we. Made it 1,920 euros, was it, around that? Correct. Plucked that out of um, my brain somewhere. I don't know what I'm still doing in there. So, yeah, you could sell it at an auction house. For me, I'd stay away from eBay these days because although the authentication thing is really, really cool, the commission is is brutal. And it's only 6% on Chrono24, which I think is about half of what eBay charges now. And that 6%, I think, is well spent on Chrono24 because you have a, a very focused group of buyers who are into watches and i think that you can get a lot more money on chrono 24 because you can put it at whatever price you really want and sometimes someone will just snap it up if it's a watch they've been searching for for a while or they will contact you and negotiate and they can make offers you can make counter offers and that's all rather nice and it's all taken care of on the app or online and the best thing about chrono 24 for me is the escrow service with the payments so the payment is made by the buyer and held in escrow before you receive it. You have to deliver the watch to the buyer and they have to say, okay, this is safe, this is nice, this is as described, I'm very happy, and then the money is released into your account. Now, as a purchaser, that is really, really good. And as a seller, I think you can be confident that it's uh, the best way of protecting yourself should there be an issue with the buyer. You should, of course, talk to the buyers. You should be comfortable with whom you're selling. Don't make a sale with somebody who oh, seems, let's shall we say, like too picky or too much of a tire kicker, and like a, you know, one of those guys that's going to complain about the fact that the watch is made from steel um, when it clearly states that it's made from steel because they thought it was white gold or whatever. Like, just try and identify who you're doing business with. But that's a good platform. Another one online that I like is Catawiki. I know it's quite popular in certain regions. I think it's quite popular in the Netherlands actually that's where I first started using it when I was working up there and I've stuck I've used it again in Germany it's good for camera equipment as well and like uh, guitars musical instruments that sort of stuff but it's really nice for watches and you can find some really really good stuff if you've got a cheaper watch that you're trying to shift try eBay Kleinanzeigen um, I'm pretty sure that that exists all over the world with a different name but it's a, in germany that's what we call it it's like the small ebay like for like more like swaps or trades or giving stuff away but also you can you can put some crappy job lots of watches on there and as a buyer you can certainly get a lot of cool stuff and yeah i would say that those methods are the best but i really liked your suggestion of the red bar community that you started like work with guys share your passion people that maybe have watches you'd like to trade for if you really want to cash out of the watch then fine you're gonna find people that you know know what a fair price is and probably don't want to screw you over and don't want to mess you around and if you could meet them in person at a social event like red bar then all the better for it because i'm sure the level of trust will be through the roof so there you go richard i hope that answers the first part of the question but now let's move on to the second alon now this is interesting because i know we both struggle with this with the emotional aspect of letting go of watches so let's just revisit that question from richard he says if someone does want to sell a watch what's the best way to do it i once promised myself that when my watch box is full it's one in one out this gets tricky especially when there are some sentimental items how would you guys recommend going about letting watches go now first question alan how big is your watch box <laughs> oh so the advantage of the disadvantages of having a big collection is you surpass that problem. <laughs> we have multiple boxes. It doesn't fly anymore. Um, with these little OCD tendencies, I feel you, Richard. I hear you. Set yourself free, dude. Buy more boxes. Split them up or whatever. Um, get rid of those tendencies. That will feel better. If financially you have limitations and that's i guess on anybody's radar and it's a problem for any collector whatever the budget and monthly income is um that usually could give 
a push to let something go. Um, Rob and I, I think, are on the same level. I think we literally think every day about what we really want to buy, and that automatically triggers the question, do I need to let something go? I guess most of the time it means yes, unless it's a moon swatch or something or a G-Shop. And then you hit a brick wall. You're like, oh, darn, what do I need to let go? What don't I let go? And then the older I get, the more of a protocol I have created for myself. I usually have two tests. If I pick up a watch that I haven't had in my rotation for quite some time, and there are many of them, if I pick it up, does it bring a smile to my face? Does it bring up good memories? And then I wear it for at least 24 hours. And if I enjoy it, it deserves its its spot in that watch box, right? One of many. If it doesn't do what I just said, I freeze the piece. What does it mean? I, I ice it out in the sense that I really put it away even deeper back in the vault, let it sit there for at least three, six, nine, 12 months, and then do the test again. If it's second time around still doesn't appease or please me, it goes. So that's a bit the protocol that I do. And then we're talking more and more about the grill watches in our collections on this show. And I've said this many times on air. It's not good for me, this show, because I want more watches. I buy more watches. I want more watches. It's growing my appetite instead of satisfying my appetite. The talking about it doesn't diminish the need to actually own the pieces. It makes it bigger. So if any of your listeners has that same problem, Rob and I apologize. All kidding aside, I have now some of the grayish watches on my radar, and I'll be forced to sell some pieces to actually obtain those. And the best therapy with any problem in life is talk to your mates, your buddies, your friends. So I actually talked to Rob a lot about it and other watch collectors, and I, I really consult them. It's almost a, a, a psychotherapy, and it's good to talk about it. Talking helps. It really does. And I appreciate having you there as a sounding board whenever I'm thinking about doing something drastic, which is becoming almost a daily occurrence these days. Richard, we really feel your pain in this issue. And Alon and I, as he said, wrangle with it all the time. I'm going through an interesting phase at the moment collecting, and it's a phase of deliberate curation and consolidation. I got to the point where I had around 70 watches of note in my collection and they weren't all mega box pieces but they were significant you know they were sellable as well at a decent price so i was able to sort of chip away at that gross number and work down towards smaller numbers of pieces that have a higher amount of time on my wrist and also receive much greater adoration from me and i think that's the key point that you mentioned alan and that is and what should be worn, it should be loved, it should be enjoyed. There's no point in having something sitting in a box. And that, I, I, you, I would have disagreed with that years ago, actually. I would have said, oh, no, of course there's a point in having it. You can collect it. Now, I have two box-fresh Casios from the very late 80s, early 90s, a Casio Surfing Timer and a Casio Skywalker. Now, I picked these up an absolute steal from a guy in Belgium, which isn't the Netherlands, in case anyone's wondering. And I have held on to them ever since and they have the original straps with the original screen printing on the straps it's incredibly rare to find them in this kind of condition the surfing timer which is the most popular and legendary of two is literally flawless the skywalker's got like a little tiny scratch on the back of one lug where somebody obviously tried to take the strap off and failed but these watches are so pristine I dare not wear them. I've put the surfing timer on my wrist once or twice for a wrist shot, worn it around the house for about 20 minutes, and I was like, oh, God, no, I better not, because I might scratch the strap, the rubber strap, because, you know, what rubber's like after all those years, it's not quite as resilient. It starts to get that shine, and then it starts to dry out, and then it starts to crack, and these are perfect as it stands, and I don't want to damage them. They're museum pieces. So I was standing in front of my box the other day, and I've trimmed my collection down to about 35 or 40 pieces or something. I've got three boxes. One with 15 pieces, which is kind of like the the best watches. That's They live in there. One with 10 pieces. That's where I keep my collaboration watches. I've got the ones I've done with Nomos, Straum, and 
uh, Arcanaut in there, just three design-led brands. They look well together. And then I've got another big box with 36 pieces in, but this is not full anymore because, like I say, I've trimmed down. So there's only about 10 or 11 pieces in that one now. The bottom level of that big box is where I hide my watches that are being iced out. So, Alan, you spoke about this, and I do exactly the same thing. If I'm considering getting rid of a watch, I put it on the block. I call it the trading block, which is what you'd call it in American football, I guess. And I just leave it out there, and I think, okay, do I need it? Do I miss it? Do I crave it? Do I want it back? And amazingly, more often than I'd like to admit, the answer is no, I don't miss it. And there is a huge amount of pleasure in having fewer but better things. To be honest, I think there's a huge amount of pleasure in having fewer things as I'm going through this. And I was motivated to try and get rid of the vast majority of my collection because I'm excited by the upcoming watch from our friend Sylvain Berneron, who was on the show oh, several episodes ago now, about 25 episodes ago. And I want to buy in to his project. Now, the pricing of his project is not yet fixed, but I am allocating a lot to it just in case so that I have hopefully close to enough when the opportunity to purchase one of those comes around. And that may be several years yet, not just because he hasn't launched yet, but because there will no doubt be a huge demand for his watches. And I would not want to step in front of anybody who was not as close to Sylvan personally as, as we are, because, you know, I want him to have a viable business and I want him to serve his customers first and foremost. And I'll wait my turn. And when my turn arrives, I hope I'll have been able to sell as many watches as necessary to afford it. Now, I put aside 18 of my watches that I would sacrifice for a burner run. And in that 18 included all of my Omega Speedmasters. Wow. RJ will be, will be spinning wow. right now. Yeah. Now, wow. I said, I always, I, I had five. And I said, I would never sell the 98 replica, the Broad Arrow, that I bought when I started for Tello. Because I love that watch. And it was a very special moment for me. And it has many fond memories. But through some complete chance of all the speedmasters i bought that's the one that's appreciated in value the most i paid 2700 for it at the start of what 2020 i think and it now goes for around 5k on chrono 24 and that's you know that's pretty healthy return on a watch and given the fact that i wear it less and less often these days when it comes to chronographs i wear what i'm wearing today that's the lavender automobile and my glasser Panamatic 70s chronograph, you know, the orange one with the nice vibing orange dial, the watch of whose name I can never remember, strangely. So, you know, I'm kind of growing out of the Speedmaster phase. I'm sure I'll fall back into it at some point in the future and maybe regret moving on from these things. But an interesting thing happened to me the other day. It's a bit of a seedy story, but I'll tell you anyway, because we're all friends here. I was in Benidorm on a stag do. Okay. And I, I think you can appreciate that what's coming is not going to be too decorous shall we say i was quite drunk and i was walking home from my hotel and i was accosted by a rather aggressive prostitute true story and i was like i'm sorry madam i have no interest in purchasing your wares please allow me to continue on my merry way home i said something along those lines anyway she was pissed off with me because i was i think at one point i probably sort of like started you know moralizing and like why are you doing this you could do anything with your life stop chasing me down the street she nicked my sunglasses my 400 euro mascots nicked him and ran off with him. <laughs> yeah, it's not funny, mate. <laughs> not funny. So somewhere in Benidorm, there's a prostitute with some very nice sunglasses. So if you meet her, uh, watch out, is what I would say. If you see anyone wearing um, some black framed lentoshes with purple purple lenses, they're sort of Johnny Depp style sunglasses, just stay clear or she'll have your wallet. Anyway. She nicked my mascots, and I was pretty sad about it because I loved those glasses. It wasn't so much the money. Now, I'm not so rich that like losing a pair of sunglasses like that is no thing. Obviously, it was a thing. I was like, damn it. Like, Do I buy them again or do I not? And I decided not to buy them again. I decided that I would accept the fact that I had the pleasure of owning them for a while and enjoyed their company while they're in my possession. And now I hope this uh, lady of the night is enjoying them similarly. And I, I hope she Googles the name on the back of the frames when she, uh, when she got home realizes that she had a very profitable evening. Anyway, I thought about it a lot. I thought about the fact that when I was younger, I wanted to accrue and hold possessions. I was obsessed with possessions because I didn't have many toys as a child. I wanted everything. As soon as I was earning my own money from about 12, I started buying things. I would just collect everything. I would collect like 
Tazos or trading cards or stickers or figures or Lego or whatever I could get my hands on. And everything was curated like a museum in my room. Everything was laid out so like precisely so I could look at all of these things that I'd managed to lay my hands on. And then as I got older and continued to get older, I find it very distasteful and I'm quite ashamed of my behavior as a child. And obviously I understand it. I was just a kid going through a phase, but I did the same thing when I got into watches. I was like, bye, 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 bye. You know how cathartic it is to sell these items, to accept that they passed through your hands for a while as yours. You attained them. That was nice. You enjoyed them, but you don't enjoy them now to the extent that they, en- they deserve to be enjoyed. I'm not saying that your watches have feelings. I'm not saying it's going to break their little hearts, you know, sitting in the box, not being warm. But our hobby is one of joy, right? It's one of sharing joy. A lot of the community building aspects that tie us together as people are the finest things that horology has to offer. Not just the fine mechanics and the artisanal craftsmanship that we all appreciate, but it's the way that they bind us together. These small little objects that track the most valuable commodity of all are the one thing that unites us. And I think that if you have a nice watch, like a Omega Speedmaster Broad Arrow Replica 98 sitting in your box, a watch that could bring joy to somebody else wearing it on a daily basis, a watch for whom it may be a grail, for example, then you should sell it. Like, it's not your moral responsibility. I'm not getting on my soapbox and saying that, but I'm just saying, think about the pleasure that you would feel about enabling someone else to buy the watch that they want like giving over something you treasure, something you value. You know, it's it's always more important to give someone something that means something to you. And if you respect and appreciate these watches that you've either built or designed or accrued or bought to mark special occasions in your life, then moving on from them and allowing someone else to mark a special occasion in their lives with the same piece can be quite satisfying. And so I would say, keep your eyes on the price, what it is that you want more than anything else. Ensure that you are wearing your watches. If you're not, ice them out for a bit, put them on the block, see how you feel. If you don't miss them, move on from them and feel good about it. Remember how you felt when you bought that watch. Remember how you felt when you put it on for the first time. And if you don't feel like that anymore, cool, that's fine. You've had your ownership. You've enjoyed it. Like I enjoyed those sunglasses. It's time to let someone else enjoy them. Fellow watch lover or Benidorm prostitute, whoever it may be. I think that's a nice thing. Well said. And I was actually thinking while I was listening to you, it's um, interesting about the collecting because I also, as a kid, very early on started collecting stuff. I guess any kid collected Lego, maybe Duplo, Lego and Playmobil. And I I did the whole stamp thing, very long and very deep and also coins. More from a historic point of view because my roots lie in, 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 in Babylon, so, and, and, and there was a lot of inflation, hyperinflation, currency changes. So I collected the notes and coins because it tells history, not so much for monetary value. And I actually still have them. I kept them for my kids. The stamps, I'm not sure. Maybe they're in my parents' basement. And, and today I actually collect only two things. It's watches and sneakers. But now that I was listening to you, I was thinking, yeah, you're right. It's, no fun to collect things if they don't have a utility. And what do I mean by that? That you can do something with them. Obviously, you can sit down and look at your stamps all day long or you count your coins, but there's no fun in it, is it? So that's a cool thing. Um, so I'm actually still happy with my two hobbies. And and I actually use them. I, I don't buy them to flip them or make money off of it. It's nice that they kind of retain their value, relatively seen. Um, regarding the what you said about that you're ashamed about the collecting, I also, for example, collected Coca-Cola stuff from all over the world because they were written in different languages. But it's purposeless, isn't it? And, and I think it's maybe cool that one time we bring on a psychologist to the show and we do a deep dive on why people collect. What do you think, Rob? Yeah, I'd love that, actually. I mean, it is fascinating. I think, to be honest, we probably have touched upon quite a few interesting points that having a professional to analyze would extend into a, a long-running, almost series of podcasts. You know, we could we could start our own therapy session uh, for collectors, for 
for traumatized collectors. But um, yeah, if we can find somebody, if any of the listeners, by the way, if you are like a qualified psychiatrist or psychologist and you, and you would like to come on the show and discuss why we collect and what motivates people to hoard and accrue things and what benefits there can be in it and also in letting it go, then please get in touch because that would be really, really interesting. Right. Funnily enough, I think we've got time for one more question. We kind of spent a long time on on that and the Scandinavian thing, but I'm quite glad we did because, you know what, it's it's a big deal, like, deciding how to approach your hobby. And I know, like, it's not the gravest consideration in the world, and it's a, certainly a luxury problem to have to know which of your, you know, multi-thousand euro watches to move on from and when and why, but... It's okay for people to feel something for these objects. They are emotive objects. And anyone that rubbishes, you know, the relationship that we as watch collectors have with our timepieces, sure, they don't get it. And, you know, but that's, it's not right to do that. You know, some people have passions for other things like horses or cars or planes or jackets or trainers or baseball caps you know so and that's fine you know you don't have to understand everybody or agree with everybody but we do take it very seriously because it is serious to us and it affects our enjoyment of life and that takes us into our next question from peter gruber who is wondering what the hell Leica are playing at he contacted us from the contact form thank you peter he says Leica watches what's the deal amazing cameras with legendary construction and quality does this carry over to the new watch line is it just like a styling on another watch? He love, love, loves our show. Thanks, Peter. Ah, he has an IWC 3338779, a Jungen's Maxbill Automatic, and his new favorite Schofield Signalman DLC. What a nice three-watch collection that is. I approve. I approve, too. <laughs> i approve i might i might isolate that and use that as a drop at some point in the future i love it uh, i approve too yeah good i approve too yeah yeah say good <laughs> say good say good okay let's answer mr gruber's question leica watches alan have you seen these hit the market recently yes i have actually and um the f I, I guess it's a second generation or it's an iteration of the first generation and initially, when they hit the market, it spoke to me. I liked the design. It seemed quality. I liked the styling. The first question was like, what the heck is going on here? Is this just a collab? Is it just the names glued onto another watch and therefore written on a name? Is it manufacture or not? And what's going on here? Why the hell does the world need Leica watches besides their amazing cameras? Um, I think it's rather proprietary it's not hardcore manufacture but i don't remember who they teamed up with rob but this is a question for you as a watchmaker back in the day with for the calibers they launched two models i think yeah well the movement's an interesting thing it's actually made in close cooperation as they say on the Leica website with layman precision gmbh gmbh and that is a company in the black forest of all places and they have made this movement for Leica, and it's rather handsome. It's an interesting direction for Leica to have taken. So a couple of reasons why I think that when I worked for Nomos, I was really pushing for Nomos to approach Leica to do a collaboration because I thought that the New York hipsters would go mad for it if we could just take the Leica red button, you know, the, the, the sort of iconic red logo, and just put that on the crown of a Nomos Metro. New York would just go crazy for that watch. And I was adamant that would be a fine pairing, a really sensible team up. It didn't go down the way I'd intended at the time. And like I have since, with nothing to do with me, no input on my side, gone on to make these watches. And they've chosen to come in at quite a price point, like to, to really like do something different. There is actually a functionality to that red button on the crown. Rather weirdly, it resets the seconds hand, the sub seconds hand at six o'clock and you don't see that very often at all. It's almost like it's a 60-second chronograph in a way. What do you think about that, Alan? So I think that's super cool. And where we're moving to a world where everything is digital and buttonless, I wouldn't say I have a button fetish, uh -uh. but I still like jackets with buttons. I miss my Blackberry. Um, I love real buttons in cars, especially on the Mini. You have these click switches you know 
You know how you call them in English? These sticks that click up and down. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're, they're not buttons. They're even they're literally switches. That's why you, that's why they call the switch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a switch. Yeah. It's a metal, massive metal switch. I love the click. I like the sound. I like the heaviness. I hate these plastic buttons, but okay. The the only thing there's only one thing that I love about my iPhone. That's the mute and sound button. It's the only real. <laughs> it's made to call. So I love buttons and. On cameras, I still grew up luckily with eight millimeters film and real film Kodak film cameras, mirror reflex. So the sound of a mirror switching up and down when you click a pic, when you shoot a photo, it's, it's, it's ingrained in my mind. And it's cool that they took that and created a mono pusher esque watch. And I reckon they built this functionality in their hand-wound, almost manufacture caliber. Is you want to time shutter times or the fragma of your oh. shoot? I don't know. Well, that's I guess they, that's why they did it. But I reckon a rattrapante or a five hertz or ten hertz watch, so thirty-six thousand would be more appropriate because you need to go way below a full regular second, but I reckon that's why they did it. When they hit the market, they actually got great coverage. Um, I, I, I don't remember when this was actually. Well, but I think it was I, around I, a year ago that we first saw stuff from like, I think it was uh, March no, 22. No, no, no. I think it was in 19 even. How was it that early? It's really many years ago. Then it went silent and now they made this monochrome batch or series of monochrome watches um, which makes sense because the cameras usually would like are black or blackened or have a black coating um, and I, I I think it works because by creating another product category that's top top high end quality it says something about the original product right that it's quality cameras well I mean I think you're right but that is an unusual approach to branding and it doesn't often work i think what might see this watch meet with success is the fact that it is actually really really well made like the movement is gorgeous the hands when you zoom in on the hands they are something else like they are some um, of the most creative and architectural hands mirrored by beautiful indices as well with this double level very angular form i just can't speak highly enough about those elements the funny thing is about this watch, because from the back, it's absolutely stunning. And under a microscope, it's absolutely exquisite, is that overall, it's pretty dull. It's boring to look at. Now, that might be to its credit in some ways. Some people might be really thrilled by how subtle it is and how professional and sleek and how little Leica have felt the need to throw the kitchen sink at the design and focus on the very small details that make it stand out as a quality product. But man, oh man, oh man, is it boring. Do you not think? Boring. Boring. Yes. Really? Dull. Really? Dull as dishwater. No, 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 no. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. It suits. Did you, no. did you mean to say no? Yeah? No? <laughs> yeah. No. It's There is there is no doubt I mean, in my no. It's crystal clear that's not boring. It fits the brand DNA. Um, it is German all the way through. Yeah, true. It's less is more. It's done discreetly it's almost form follows function i don't know maybe yes no i, I never held one i i and we said this on air i don't want to give definite opinions unless i've had it in my hands played with it put it on my wrist but on paper as and i've studied it when it came out in i believe 19 i've studied it um it's there's nothing out there is it groundbreaking? No. But does Leica need to be? No. Okay. I, I don't know who I don't know who would buy this, yeah? If you ask me, should I buy this or a uh a Nomos Veldzite Zurich? Should I buy a Mos Grossman? Should I buy even if you 
budget doesn't permit, it could have been a union glasshut. Yeah, 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 which is Swiss Ooh, made. God, okay. Um, yeah? yeah, no, not really. Uh, but uh, okay. Uh, 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 what, what, what do they even cost? Rob? Oh, right. Well, so there's two different types of it. There's a Leica L1, which shows the hours, minutes, small seconds, day, power reserve indicator, and then there's the Leica L2, creative naming system. Hours, minutes, small seconds, date, power reserve indicator, second time zone, uh, GMT with day and night indicator. The first one, the L1, is 9,500 euros, and the second L2 is 13,500 euros. So they are serious watches. Uh, the movement commands price of that nature, I would say, quite comfortably. The brand, however, it's Leica. It's weird. It's like a Remoa watch. Do I need it? They're experts in their field, but I don't know. So, okay, one strange thing happened to me when i was thinking about this brand and i was uh, it was exactly what i just expressed then like it's a camera brand why are they making watches and then i thought about someone like say uh Straum, new brands they weren't a camera brand with decades of experience in high-end luxury product manufacturer they were just guys with the relevant experience in fields of design and they took on making a watch company so why Am I more inclined to buy a watch from those guys, which I am, than a brand like Leica that has already proven itself past every sniff test it's ever been subjected to over decades? Isn't that a weird phenomenon? Isn't it strange, like, expertise and, like, global icon status in one field can in some way make it very difficult to step into another Almost parallel field because you know these are both precision industries. So, do you know what I mean? Like, do you ever get that feeling? Yeah, I, I, I totally know what you mean. And and I guess the one that suffers the most of that, uh, what should we call it, um, illness, is Mont Blanc. Ah, yeah, good point. And 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 and, and Mont Blanc is not really a fashion brand; it's a German pen manufacturer, right? That made other leather products because they want to make a cover for the pens and then they expanded into notebooks and handbags and wallets and bought by Richemont and Richemont started making watches because that's what they know how to do. And then since they didn't get the street cred they wanted, they bought Minerva and Rupert and Co. decided it goes to Mont Blanc because Mont Blanc was the number two brand in the group after Cartier. So they deserved it. Serato did amazing things, whom, by the way, we want to congratulate on air because it's our mutual friend and buddy, who became CEO of Bremont, by the way. So, congrats to both our friends, the English brothers. Congratulations, guys. That's a that's a pairing that we will be watching with great interest. Yes, and that will be amazing. And he did amazing stuff at Mont Blanc. When he left Mont Blanc, I think the uh, uh, chocolate souffle deflated a bit again. Um, so, if we reverse engineer it, if there's somebody who could make watches or have a nice angle, it's actually a camera maker because cameras used to be very mechanical, right? Well, fully mechanical. Today, they're computers. Only the lenses are really still mechanical or handmade. Um, so it's actually an instant move. But I, I, I actually wonder who buys this, but I guess they're made for Leica fanboys. Well, you better hope so, because I don't know who else is going to buy them. I mean, you need a serious amount of cash. Like, if I had 13500 I'd spend it on a glass of Tourigonel, or I'd spend it on even a Lavender, which is weird, because like I said before, these new brands with no pedigree in any industry that means anything to me, or is globally renowned, versus Leica, which is, you know, a company that you can guarantee will see you right, I guess, and a movement of extreme beauty and competence... I just, I'm just not convinced. I just, I, I just know I wouldn't buy it. Like, do I think it's a good watch? I mean, let's just, let's focus on Peter's question precisely. He says, is it just like a styling on another watch? Just another watch. It's not just another watch. No, it's very good. It's very special. It exists for a good reason. It deserves respect, I think. But the question is, do you like it? Now, you like it. I don't know if you'd buy it. I don't like it that much. I love the movement. I really like the functionality. I just, and I love the handset and I love the indices, but it just, to me, just overall, it's just a bit, it's just a bit drab. Like it doesn't sort of like make me smile in any way. It's just like, okay, maybe if I was a Leica fanboy and I had five Leica cameras, I'd want to have the watch as well, but I just don't know if I'd be that bothered, to be honest. 
What do Leica cameras cost, by the way? I, I, I don't even know. I know Hasselblad is the most expensive out there. Leica is maybe the second most expensive. I, I don't know if it's the second most expensive, but they're, they're a few thousand to start, I think, about 5K or so. But, um, yeah, they go. I think they go up pretty pretty high. Yeah, okay, but that makes Hasselblad the Patek Philippe of cameras, let's say. Well, yeah, Hasselblad is, is widely regarded as like the daddy, isn't it? And Leica's more like yeah. the hipster, hipster son of Hasselblad. Yeah, okay, so, but then it's not that weird that they make 10K-ish watches. Yeah. Because if it's really top, top quality, it's not excellent. But I agree with you. If you want a German, less is more design, I, it, it wouldn't be my to-go brand. But I still would love somebody from Leica watches on the show. And let's ask them this question. Yeah, let's do it. Um, I just Googled and it seems like the cheapest Leica is around two and a half thousand, the TL2. But um, I don't know. I'm not an expert. So um, anyone who is a camera expert, feel free to come and correct us. Right, Peter, I hope that answers your question or maybe gives you more questions about the Leica models that you want to explore or ask us. Again, that's fine. Please do get in touch. If anyone else would like to get in touch with us, you can do so either via Instagram. I'm there at Rob Nudds, R-O-B-N-U-D-D-S. Alon can be found at A-L-O-N-B-E-N-J-O-S-E-P-H. You can contact us via email, rob at therealtime.show or alon at therealtime.show. You can contact us via the contact form on the website, which is www.therealtime.show. Or you can contact us through our link tree. I'd forgotten we had one. You'll find it kicking around somewhere. Good luck with that. Please like, follow, and subscribe to the podcast and help us grow the real-time network. We'll be back on Thursday with an interview with one of Watchmaking's finest. Until then, stay safe and keep on ticking.